0: This episode of the Robot Report Podcast is brought to you by the Robotics Summit and Expo. The world's leading robotics design and development event returns to Boston May 10th and the 11th at the Boston Convention Center. Registration is now open. The agenda is posted. You can check out the 100 plus exhibitors on the show floor. To do all that, please visit the roboticsummit.com. Welcome to episode 75 of the Robot Report podcast, which brings conversations with robotics innovators straight to you. I'm Steve Crow, editorial director of the Robot Report. Thanks, folks, for tuning into the show. If you haven't found us yet, you can find us on all the popular uh, podcast platforms, Amazon Music, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, SoundCloud, Spotify, anywhere. you listen to your podcast, please subscribe, give us a listen, give us a review, would really help us out. Joined as always, by Mike Oitzman, the editor of our robotics group. What's going on, man?
1: Steve, what it looks like it's end of another week, but maybe a slow week from the news perspective. I'm suspecting everybody has a little bit of news hangover from <laughs> the prior the prior weeks. The show, all the shows that have happening. We had the we had the assembly show out here on the West Coast, ATX West, this week. But uh, but still a, a pretty slow.
0: Usually. Yeah. I, yeah. I think things have been relatively quiet, which is fine by me. Right. <laughs> um, you know, we got a million things going on, right. As we exactly. norm- normally do, I guess that's the new normal, but uh, yeah, with the, with the summit, you know, three weeks away here, we wrapped up the RBR 50 stuff, which is coming out next week. Right. Uh, most can can stay tuned for the winners coming out early next week. So yeah. Uh, a lot for us to do. Um, so, yeah, somewhat of a slow news week, and we'll, we'll get into that here in a second. I do want to plug, Mike, the interview uh, that you did. A great interview, as always. We'll play that a little bit later on in the show. Mike had a chance to sit down with Willie Pell, the VP of Automation at Blue River Technology, a pretty well-known company there. They were acquired by John Deere, of course, back in two th- 2017, for $305 million. And we were just talking, Mike, before we started recording this, is that was a large number back then. And, and right. still even to this day, right? I mean, some of the AMR companies that have been acquired, what, last year were in that ballpark, a little bit less than that, I think. Yeah. Um, right in the ballpark. But here's a company that, you know, Blue River Technology focused mainly on, I think, the machine learning aspect of autonomy for tractors and other types of farm equipment still really hasn't taken off i don't think right i mean we're we're getting there but 305 million bucks 5 years ago that's a pretty high number
1: indeed and and, and willie talks about that this in the interview and, and we'll get to that in the interview but the point is that uh, what john deere acquired was their machine learning expertise and You know, even though John Deere announced the launch, not announced, but launched the tractor officially in January of this year, they had been doing prototyping for the last three to five years, you know, since the acquisition of with Blue River. And, you know, really what John Deere acquired, you know, in Blue River was a, you know, Silicon Valley based uh, technology company that knows how to, to build machine learning models. And that's really the the crux of of what they've been able to do for John Deere.
0: Right. So, all right, we'll play that a little bit later on in the show. But, yeah, really only a a couple of interesting news items, I think, this week, Mike, uh, to to, to really discuss on the show. And, and folks, we have you covered uh, with all the latest news from the global robotics industry with our network of robotics sites. You can check us out at the Robot Report, Mobile Robot Guide, Robotics Business Review and collaborative robotics trends. I think we have to start only because this has never happened before, as far as I know. And I'm not big on this like first time ever thing. We get a lot of pitches from robotics companies, right? Mike, I'm all about, you know, we're not really sure this is the first time ever. Uh, I I think this is the first time this has ever happened. At least it's the first time we've ever seen-
1: Not on tape.
0: (laughs) On on tape, a fully autonomous robo-taxi being pulled over by the cops, right? Yeah, right. uh, I I think people have probably seen the video at this point in time. If you're listening to this, you've probably seen the video. If you haven't, we'll make sure that we include it in the show notes of the podcast. But the incident actually happened. It just really caught uh, steam this week. I actually saw it last weekend. I saw it. But the incident, so a cruise robo-taxi pulled over in the Richmond district of San Francisco by the cops. The incident actually happened on April 1st. But what a video. And I don't know where you want to start, but we can just kind of take you through the video. It was quite confusing to me initially when I watched it. I don't know how many times I've watched it, probably <laughs> 50, 100 times at this point in time. But the video starts and they're, they're stopped at a red light, right? Yep. Just a normal red light in San Francisco. And there's a the cruise robo-taxi is sandwiched in between another passenger vehicle that's in front of it and then behind the cruise robo-taxi. Is a police car, and this is where I got confused. Is you really got to watch it carefully? Is the the red light turns green, and the car in front of the cruise vehicle starts driving away, Mm -hmm. and the cruise vehicle doesn't leave. And if you watch it carefully, you will notice that the cops eventually the cop gets out of the car and starts to approach the cruise robo taxi, and maybe a second or two go by after the cops walking towards the robo taxi, and that's when the cops lights start flashing and you and I were talking about this. And I think that's gotta be what sort of constituted this uh, being an official pullover. Right. So I guess the robo taxi didn't have its headlights working and that's Hmm. what initially caused this. But I think for us and for the audience, the real interesting thing is sort of how it played out, like what triggered the, the remote supervisor to, you know, jump in and, Tell the car where to find a safe spot to pull over. I think mm-hmm. that's probably the more interesting nugget here for for folks listening to this show.
1: Well well, and I think you, you got to put yourself in the driver's seat. Uh, and we were talking about this, but anytime you know a, you see a, a cop car in your rearview mirror, whether the lights are on, you've got to evaluate the situation, right? right especially and especially once the lights come on, uh you know you're you're asking yourself is the is he coming after me or is he want to get past me to go on some other call right and i think that the the logic here that uh the a i needs to follow has to has to learn from that situation as any sixteen year old has to learn you know when they're driving the first time they are you know a cop comes past them or or pulls them over
0: yeah it's it's always a tricky situation right and You know, to Cruz's credit, they do have, and we link to it in the article that we wrote up. they have a whole document that they've produced to educate first responders, not just police officers, but other types of first responders about how their vehicles work and how to interact with them Mm -hmm. when incidents like this take place. You know, this was not an emergency situation. Again, the car, the headlights were not on. Cruz was saying that this was a human error that they had since fixed, and I think that's another, you know human we make errors all the time there's mechanical failures in these cars all the time whatever Mm -hmm. um you know i again because the video there's so much that you could learn prior to the video like how long was it driving around with no headlights on you know who knows but Mm -hmm. um so i think what happened here was i guess and you know crews can certainly you know chime in on this but there's so there was a lot of chatter that This was a a police chase, right, because the car stopped and then it drove away and then stopped, I think, less than 10 seconds later when it figured out that it was a safer spot for uh, the police officers to do their job. People online are are making fun of the cops because it looks like they don't know how to interact with the vehicle, which I don't think is the case. I think there's certain if you look at the document that Cruz has produced There's certain ways that police officers can interact with it and get different identification numbers or numbers Mm -hmm. to call, uh, so on and so forth, to try to remedy the situation. I've seen that they were even trying to turn the headlights on themselves, perhaps by getting into the, you know, opening the driver's side door, which was locked. So I I think that's a little unfair to to the Mm -hmm. you know the San Francisco police. I think it's probably unfair to Cruz too to to make light of that situation. Uh, I think what happened was once the cops' lights went on. The system it's the crew system understood that it was being pulled over right yeah right i think that's the
1: that's the critical thing about the video is when and we don't know what happened before this as well right but the the lights are not on when the cop gets out of the car which is could be confusing to anybody in that situation
0: yeah it it took again we watched this really closely and it was the confusing part so the cop gets out of the car and is approaching the vehicle maybe for two seconds before the lights go on. But I missed that the first couple of times you watched it, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, so I think that's probably what triggered the remote supervision team from Cruise to step in and uh, supervise and direct, not physically take over steering of the vehicle, but just direct the vehicles to a safe spot so that the, the cops could, you know, do their thing. So, mm-hmm. uh, you know, it is, it is an interesting video. It is somewhat of a, a comical video, right? Um, It's just an interesting thing to see, you know, Cruz, they released a public statement, uh, you know, which we reported in the article. They also we reached out to them as well. And this is how we got the a little bit of additional information. So I'll just read that what they sent to us a quote. "Uh, The incident was April 1st in the Richmond district. A human error led to the AV not having its headlights on, which was the reason the San Francisco Police Department approached it. And we have fixed the issue that led to this the A V yielded to the police car and stopped in the lane. Once it was clear that the AV was the subject of the traffic stop and the officer was clear of the vehicle, whose personnel directed the AV to pull over at the nearest safe location, which was across the intersection. Yeah, That's there the
1: there you have it. Yeah.
0: Yeah. And the they, the San Francisco Police Department, they sent out a police report, uh, which they do for you know all of these incidents, I guess. Um, and they said that they made contact with the remote operator of the driverless vehicle. I thought that was a little bit of an interesting way to word it. So remote operator, does that mean cruise itself? Or, again, cruise has contact numbers for first responders in these types of situations. Hmm. So um, just an interesting video all around. I think, you know, certainly the first time I've ever seen anything like this. But I think with cruise, with Waymo up and running, Uh, in limited capacity in San Francisco with their public robo-taxi services. uh, You're going to see this happen more often. Waymo obviously has a similar service up and running in Phoenix. I haven't seen anything come out of there. But I I will say also, you know, credit to Cruise for a number of different reasons here. I think the AV acted as it was supposed to act, right? Right, Um, yep. At the same time, you know, Waymo had a lot of restrictions for 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 people and this was a this was filmed by somebody who appeared to just be walking the street mm. right someone's on oh sorry walking on the sidewalk and just <laughs> happened to stumble across this incident at the red light. Yeah and you know they haven't really ru- run away from it right at all. I mean they responded to some of the comments on Twitter. They responded to our email immediately they've responded to other media outlets out there. Uh and you can you know I, I have no reason to not believe what they've said. Um, but I think it takes a lot of guts because this was a national story, right? Mm. This was on national news outlets and, and mainstream media outlets reporting this. And, you know, they don't always have the 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 knowledge of this stuff or the intimate knowledge of the stuff that you and I do and can take a little bit of a more balanced approach to it, you know? Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, So they have to understand that some of these videos are going to get out and they're going to face criticism and they're going to get ridiculed and uh, that's not an easy thing to do. Yeah
1: and I I think in defense of crews and again everyone who's working with uh, AI and machine learning models know that uh, you know this is just one more corner case that you know the system's going to learn from this all of that data now you know is being processed and you know integrated back into the workflow for, you know, how the system will handle this in the future. And, you know, it makes me wonder as well, a similar idea that, you know, when you're driving in the city and you've driven in the city a lot, Steve, I'm sure, uh, you you hear a siren, you don't know where that siren's coming from. Is it in front of you, behind you? Is it to the left or the right, the next intersection, right? Uh, Until you see the lights of the emergency vehicle approaching, whether that's a cop or whether that's an ambulance or whether that's a fire truck, Right, your yeah. your your yeah. head's on a swivel. You're trying to figure out, you know, what direction is this coming from? And, it, and it's I would be curious to, to to think through those use cases as a developer like Cruz is. You know, how do you handle that situation? I'm sure they have microphones that can hear the, hopefully even directional microphones that can tell it. You know, is it coming from behind the left? And even in a you know, a downtown situation,
0: you can't tell. There's, it's bouncing off of all the buildings, right? Sure. Yeah, yeah, sure. Yep. Yeah. I think the one question, and I don't think I asked them this and, and shame on me. Um, but again, there's one of the unanswered questions because of where the video starts. Again, how long were the headlights out? on the robo-taxi and why that's important is one this video was taken at night i'm not sure what what time at night it was taken mm-hmm. but cruise is only permitted to operate its robo-taxis in san francisco between the hours of 10 p.m and 6 a.m so, so the
1: lights need to be on in the, during its entire shift
0: right i would say most of the shift if not the whole shift yeah. right. Right. so <laughs> uh you know having working headlights is a very important safety feature and you know if they again, I have no idea did they just go did they did they stop working at that red light this is something that we don't know, and again, shame on me, I should have asked them this for clarification hmm. um but you would i would think you know shouldn't there be some let's just play this out and say that the robo taxi was operating for some length of time driving around San Francisco, even if it's five minutes or ten minutes without its headlights on shouldn't it shouldn't be there's some sort of redundancy or safety check in in the system itself so yeah you know that it it understands hey my headlights aren't working here i can't be i i we can't be operating this vehicle right now
1: yeah you know and sometimes in some parts of the city you you don't necessarily need your headlights to see what's in front of you and around you right you could there's enough street lighting that you can drive safely but of course it's the law and uh you know if you're not looking down at the if you don't right if you're not looking at the dashboard which of course there's other ways to know in an autonomous vehicle that 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 light is turned on but just one more thing to to consider
0: yeah yeah so anyway uh interesting story that will we'll, we'll uh, follow um certainly will happen again yep. um, yeah we'll, we'll be there for that uh really though the only other story Mike, that sort of caught our our attention uh some somewhat of a big story we talked about this um, I remember a conversation we were having at the time. Um, SoftBank Robotics Europe has been acquired. Let's start there. Yeah. Uh, of course, they're, they're the developers of the pepper humanoid and, in the now educational robot. They are acquired by United Robotics Group, which is a German distributor, mainly of, of different types of service robots. Mm-hmm. Uh, they distribute, um, the, uh, service robot from Pudu. they do i think the boston dynamics spot quadruped or they did at one point mm-hmm. at one point they distributed the temi uh, telepresence robot they also do the uh, sawyer collaborative robotic arm which was you know invented by rethink robotics back in the day yeah. uh, And united robotics group they've been the main uh, the master distributor of the now and pepper robots in europe since October, 2021. So they've been responsible for all sales, service, and maintenance on those robots in Europe for the last, whatever it's been, seven months or so. But they obviously have uh, more intimate knowledge in in, in a working relationship with SoftBank Robotics Europe going back longer than that. But I remember having a conversation about this uh, last October, I think was when it was first reported by Reuters that SoftBank Robotics Europe was up for sale. And I remember I had an interesting interaction with somebody at SoftBank Robotics, sure, but I can't name this person uh, out of respect for them. But this person, the way that they worded an email, and I remember discussing this on the podcast, the way that they worded an email to me about whether or not this acquisition was happening. You just, this person was unable to say something, but the way that they said it was just a, a you know, ring the bell. Like, you know, this is going to happen at some point. <laughs> this is, it's already a done deal. It's almost just a matter of time. And it took a little bit longer than I thought it would take, but here we are, you know. But I think the question, Mike, is we all have our we've all seen Pepper. It's a super well known robot. We've documented how much money Softbank has lost on this. It's been a losing effort for them ever since it was invented. There's yeah. horror stories about disagreements between, you know, the the French engineers and the Japanese executives over at SoftBank and the engineers wanted to do things certain ways and the you know the the corporate firm over in Japan didn't see they didn't see eye to eye on things right and yep. um i think ultimately invented this robot that was more novelty than anything else right Agreed. so I mean, yeah. you you asked this question before we started recording like what's going to be different going forward <laughs> right and I, I don't know if anything will be
1: right. It's a good. I think that's the big question, and the, the the one that we need to to both continue to follow and dig a little bit deeper into. But you know, I think it's interesting that they are uh, going to revert the name of the development team back to Aldabar. Yeah, or
0: however you want to pronounce that. <laughs> uh, that's another one. Al, Al, Aldebaran, I think is is Aldabaron. I've heard it both ways, but. But anyhow, that's a so there's obviously
1: you know a a vocal group that's part of this organization that you know wants to go back to the heritage, which would make you think that they're going to continue on a similar path, whether you know Pepper survives in its current form or gets rebuilt and reengineered, and they take the technology forward into some other form factor, right? Still some form of service robot solution. Um, to come forward out of this group at, at some point in the future.
0: Yeah, you know there there's some of the engineers who have since <clears throat> who have since moved on from SoftBank Robotics Europe, Who on occasion, I'll, I'll name one of them. Um, you know, he, he does this publicly, so hopefully it's okay to do this. But you know, his name's Vincent Clerk. He used to be one of the head engineers at at Aldebaran, uh, working on the the Pepper robot. And even in the last few months. During some of the struggles that they've had, he's shared, you know, patents that he's been awarded and, and images and different things of some of the different designs that they had in mind for, mm-hmm. for the Pepper robot. Now, I don't think if any of those designs came to be, I don't think there would have been much of a different outcome as far as the financial success of that robot goes. I think it probably yep. would have led to the same you know, place that we are today. Um, so it's, a, it's a really interesting business case and, you know, sort of a failed approach or, you know, different, different minds and, and how, how that can ultimately, if you're not on the same page, lead to failure. But I think to your point, like they're, they're very passionate about this robot, right? I've never seen people more passionate <laughs> about a right. robot that, you know, really other than entertaining people and, and you know, frankly doesn't I'm not sure how well it can do that. Um, you know, there's not much of a robotic aspect to it, anyway. But yeah, um, they're they're super passionate about it now. And I, I think changing the name back to Eldabaron is that sort of a a way to like we want to wash our hands of everything that happened with SoftBank. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, sort of turn the page, right? Turn the chapter type situation. Um, you know, we'll see. But I think you're right. I think. Again, we asked, you know, let's make this clear too, you know, we asked uh, United Robotics Group and SoftBank Robotics Europe, we reached out to their their folks trying to get them onto this podcast to ask them those very questions, right, about how are things going to be different or frankly, what are you going to do going forward? And maybe they don't know yet, but they declined to come on. They said maybe sometime in the near future. We also asked them, what does this mean for the production of Pepper, right? Reuters reported that SoftBank actually stopped production of the Pepper robot. I might not have this correct. I think it was sometime in 2020 or 2021 that they actually stopped manufacturing the robot. There's a lot of balls up in the air, you know, and we'll stay on them and and try to get them on. Because again, it's, there's a lot that our audience and the robotics engineers from around the world and, you know, robotics companies in general can learn from this, right? And, uh, we just want to try to educate people and, and share the story and find out what the heck's going to go on here with Pepper going forward. You know, maybe there is some nor- new humanoid robot that they want to produce. You know, for research and development efforts as well. You know, who the heck knows? But
1: um, well, they control yeah. their they control their destiny again.
0: So I guess I guess they do. It'll yeah, be for,
1: interesting to see what what happens next.
0: Yeah, one interesting. You know, to your to that point is, you know, Softbank did acquire a small stake in United Robotics Group. They didn't say how much. I don't think United Robotics Group, they're not a publicly traded company. Softbank's obviously a publicly traded company. So maybe
1: Mm -hmm.
0: maybe those details will come out. How much did it acquire in the next few months? But we'll have to keep an eye on the story. And I know, Mike, before we before we get to the interview, there was one other story. Uh, that you want to mention quickly about a, a new cobot or a cobot that you came across for the first time this week?
1: Yeah, this was a serendipitous uh, discovery. I I moderated a, a webinar yesterday from one of our sponsors, not a sponsor of the podcast, but uh, one of our sponsors, uh, uh, IGIS, and uh, it was interesting in the conversation. One of the things that they they discussed yesterday was the IGIS Rebel. It's a it's an all plastic cobot. And and it's been in the market for a little bit of time, so it's not brand new, but it was new to me. And I thought it was interesting, you know, when you think about, I guess, I think of linear slides and, you know, the high quality things they've done with plastics and and all of that, plastic bearings, that type of stuff. And they're getting more into low-cost automation. That was the theme of the webinar, which, again, is available for replay on the um uh, the robot report website. But the point I wanted to make about the IGIS rebel is that it's all plastic and it's taking, you know, what their material science, the folks at IGIS are, you know, deeply knowledgeable about plastic material science. It's what they've been doing for their tenure as a company. And so here they have produced what I think is one of the first all plastic industrial cobots. So it's not a toy, right?
0: You say all like what's all, what do you mean all plastic? What's, what's- the, the
1: Yeah, all of the links are plastic, so so all of the linkage in the robot is plastic. Some of the gearing is plastic. Everything really but the motors is the electrical components, which, of course, have to be made from metal and and what have you. But all of the the entire linkage is made out of plastic. It's all injection molded plastic, which is right in, I guess, wheelhouses, injection molding, right? That's what they do. And they do it well. And, of course, that's going to drive down the cost tremendously on this. Uh, cobot. I think they've got a winner here in terms of a you know, solution that's uh, going to hit the, the low end of the market with an interesting product.
0: Yeah, they, they, like you said, they are a material science company, right? I went down to their headquarters a few years ago when I first started at this company uh, mm-hmm. to visit with them. And I, I think they had, I don't think it was this one, but I, they had some different cobot models that they were, you know, these were more desktop you know, mm-hmm. tabletop size things, nothing that was production ready or, or ready for the market at that point in time. But they were towing yeah. this stuff even back then. So, yeah. Yeah, good but, for that.
1: So I thought that was cool. And I just thought I'd share it with everybody. If you haven't seen it, you can go to igusrebel.com and check it out.
0: Yeah, cool stuff. Yeah, and to keep updated, folks, with anything going on in the global robotics industry, again, we have you covered with our network of robotics sites. You can check us out at the Robot Report, Mobile Robot Guide, Robotics Business Review and collaborative robotics trends. Mike, you want to set up your uh, interview here with Willie?
1: Yeah, so so I had a conversation this week with Willie Pell. He's the VP of Automation at Blue River Technology. He's been in that role since the acquisition by John Deere. And we discuss how uh, Blue River Technology has advanced the state of the art for John Deere tractors with uh, the official launch in January at CES of the John Deere 8R automated tractor and really the importance of what high quality uh, software means to deer and that's not their background they build tractors they build metal uh, they know farmers but uh, it's been a really interesting marriage and that's what willie talks about um, how they have been able to uh, influence the you know the roadmap for automation at john deere now all right well i'm joined uh, this afternoon by Willie Pell, uh, VP of Autonomy and New Ventures at Blue River, and I'm excited to have uh, Willie on the podcast to talk about uh, one of my great new discoveries of, of for mobile robots, which is agriculture and the wave of innovation and automation that's taking place for agriculture. So Willie, welcome to the podcast.
2: Hey, thanks so much, Mike. Good to be here.
1: Yeah, great. Well, so let's, uh, why don't you start by uh, telling your the audience, a bit about yourself uh, and uh, your role at, at Blue River and, and how that's uh, evolved over the last 10 years as you guys have been working on uh, this very interesting uh, bit of technology that's now a core part of John Deere and John Deere's uh, roadmap for the future.
2: Yeah, it actually started before Blue River. Um, I, I started as a um, working on basically computer graphics systems, rendering engines. And I got um, into robotics through a company called 510 Systems, which made the first Google Street View systems. Hmm. And they needed visualization for that. And so we were in the early days of mapping, kind of in like the 2009 timeframe. And we started dabbling in self-driving Priuses. And uh, that was pretty fun, but also felt like pretty pretty far off. And uh, we uh, we thought we might be able to make like a really good ADAS system that would work on the 101 or the 280 or something like that. And uh, Google eventually acquired that company. And I looked at their roadmap and was like, hey, this is just going to be a long time before this ships. (laughs) What I really, really wanted to do was work in robotics, but ship on more of like, you know, a mobile app timeframe, Hmm. not on like a decades long timeframe that that, that self-driving cars were going to have. And so I found uh, Jorge and Lee in the early days of Blue River, and uh, I didn't know anything about farming. I just knew that it was—I knew robots had worked really well in factories, in these like well-lit environments, dust-free, expert operators, you know, uh, really good—you um, know, maintenance schedules for all your equipment, expensive pieces of equipment, human-manufactured, low variance objects. But like robots were succeeding really well there, and it just looked really far out. With uh, cars going seventy miles an hour, with lots of safety critical interactions, mm-hmm. um, uh, very little room for error any which way, and so farming just felt like this sweet spot, this like semi structured environment. Um, Whereas, like, you know, I actually think given where the technology is, we can we can make something work here. So I joined them in the early days. I was the third employee there, and all of us would just sit down in Silicon Valley um, uh, building these early and uh, spray machines. We were pretty dreadful at hardware. We uh, have great engineers, but we would make things that the farming environment would laugh at. And so we spent uh, a lot of time dealing with brownouts and that kind of thing. But uh, you know, we 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 kind of gritted our way through a lot of things and made a lot of customers really happy, building up these systems that could see plants and kind of give them chemicals they wanted and not give them too much of something they didn't want. And when that kind of became more and more and more mature, we graduated from what are called specialty crops, which is like. Lettuce and broccoli and things like that. We actually weren't working in broccoli, but that's what an example of what's called a specialty crop. Um, we graduated to cotton, which is a much more you know much, much bigger market. And so kind of cotton, corn and soybeans are like the big, big, big markets in agriculture, rice as well. And so once we started building systems that started you know uh, being able to uh, attack weeds, so so see uh, see the ground, take pictures of the crop, take pictures of the weeds and spray only the weeds. Once we got into that, we really got Deer's attention, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, so they they saw us, and eventually, you know, we were just completing each other's sentences during the acquisition process. Um, we all saw the future the same way that there was going to be less money spent on chemicals and seeds, and more money spent on smart equipment and computer vision, machine learning, and robotics was the unlock. And they they took a bet on us. And after the acquisition, um, we've uh, they basically said, "Hey, look, we want we've got a million problems." um (laughs) that require cameras we've got all these pieces of equipment that are highly automated um that you can control everything from a can bus so like what we really need to do is build vision systems on lots of these things so they can either do automated or autonomous work Mm -hmm. um uh, across construction agriculture road building forestry mowing you name it and uh and so then they split me off and i i went off with uh with a with a couple people and and try to figure out what was next at Blue River, um, what was next with Blue River and Deer? and autonomy was a huge opportunity. Um, so we looked at all these different variables and kind of what we really needed was, was like a beachhead market where it was valuable, but, but highly constrained, right. Um, cause the safety requirements are huge. It's a, it's a 40,000 pound machine. So we needed a highly automated tractor, which is the eight R so kind of picked the most autonomy ready machine we had in the fleet. Mm -hmm. um plus an operation that kind of was the easiest thing to do on the farm in this case it's called fall tillage where you're basically filling in an etch-a-sketch
0: right yeah you basically
2: take like effectively like a giant rake you drop it in the ground you pull it across the field back and forth right and it's because it's a high horsepower operation you know it's a high horsepower operation the the tillage implement goes pretty deep in the ground yep it takes forever right so someone might spend 14 hours a day doing this and it's a fairly low skill job and so we started there. Uh, the other reason we did it was the slower speeds and, and low dust, because uh, dust is another challenge you have in ag. Um, yeah, and, right. Uh, yeah. So, so, uh, and and it also leads to other things, right? Like the data we collect here can can kind of get us into other operations like planting and things like that. Um, but the the value it gave to the customer was not only did do, do they not have to do this very boring job that doesn't require a ton of skill, but it's during a time of year where they're harvesting. Right. And what harvesting is, is you're driving a combine, you're basically taking the winnings from the year, taking all the crop that you spent all this effort growing, you're taking it out of the ground, and you've got a combine that's driving, and then you've got next to it, you've got what's called a grain cart, which is like an in-flight refueling situation. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Where, like right. uh you've got so the combine has a spout that, that, that goes over and spits grain into the grain cart, and then the grain cart drives to a truck on the side of the field, and the truck on the side of the field goes to um Goes to a, uh, a a grain elevator or a uh, a grain dryer, and, and they're basically just this huge you know three ring circus they're running to get grain out of the field as fast as possible before everything freezes and winter sets in, and so during this whole time they have to be tilling. They get to take you know the very little labor they have and say, hey, look, forget about tilling. Let's just focus on harvest. So that was um, I don't know. It's a little bit of the story of how we got there.
1: So it's interesting. What I hear you say is that you guys consciously sat down and looked at all of the various things that happen in the stages of, of preparing the soil, planting, working the soil, and then and then harvesting and all of those things sort of map those all out. And then you did some prioritization about which was the low hanging fruit. What was the simplest thing that you could attack and hit first with the lowest number of variables. And then you've got a roadmap towards the other things on the spectrum for the coming I don't know, years, decade ahead of you. Is that correct? It's exactly
2: right. It's exactly right. And sort of, you know, machine learning strategy, you know, we're, we're kind of a deep learning first company because we had to detect crop first weed. Mm-hmm. Which really is not, that's that's a, that's a computer, it's a pure computer vision problem, right? Right. Um, there are robotics components to that, but really at the, the, the 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 meat of it is that computer vision problem. So we've had all this deep learning infrastructure built up. You know, what you want is, you want to ship product that's good, yeah. But, but it has a path to get great, right? And that the more you use these products, the more data you get, the better your models get, the better your machines good. perform, and so on and so forth. So we very much saw it as like, you know, your starting point is just your starting point, but it needs to have pathways off the beachhead that get mm-hmm. to bigger places. Um, mm-hmm. Because kind of everything with machine learning is, is like one giant rollout.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And so just so that folks that are listening, you threw out a couple of things there in in that conversation in terms of the products that are to market now, right? Some of the first things that you've you've launched in the last probably four to six months, I believe now with these solutions, you mentioned the sea and spray function. So let's rewind just briefly to that. Tell us a little bit about the introduction of that product Uh, that I think was right in your wheelhouse of uh, weed management. And it's part of the implement right? That the tr- tractor pulls. So just tell us briefly about that operation in and of itself without, you know, the rest of the automation in the tractor.
2: Yeah. So it's actually, it turns out most spraying happens from its own dedicated machine. Uh-huh. Um, it's pretty cool. It's called a self-propelled sprayer. Um, it looks a lot like a tractor, but it's got these basically 120 foot spray boom. Wow. Unfolds. Yeah. It's it basically, looks like an airplane that doesn't take off. Um, uh, <laughs> and they're The way you control weeds is you unfold those wings and you drive 20 miles an hour and you spray everything and you buy a genetically modified seed that can metabolize whatever you spray on it, be it Roundup or something like that. Uh, So the theory is, you know, you you, you kill all the weeds and you don't kill the crop. It's kind of, you know, the way we've always seen it at the river is it's a little bit like if one person at your company is sick, let's give everybody antibiotics. Yeah. Like, like you don't really, you don't need to do that. Right. Um, and, but, but farmers have never had the tool to do it any other way with these, by putting cameras across the spray boom, um, we can take pictures of the ground, detect the crop, detect the weeds and spray herbicides and only the weeds. Mm. The result is like uh, roughly 70% savings in herbicides for farmers, which and is that's significant, very significant given, you know, they're, biggest cost is seed. Their second biggest cost is chemical. Uh, and their third biggest cost is actually all the equipment that we sell. So it, it gives them, it's better for the environment and it uh, and it's uh, way better for their wallets. And it's actually why we're called Blue River is that we wanted rivers to be blue, not green, because you have all this runoff that happens. Well,
1: that's a good piece of trivia we learned today yeah. about yeah. Blue River.
2: <laughs> So
1: the actual implementation of that is it's, it's not covering that 120 foot wide piece. Is
2: it? Or you? Oh or, yeah. Oh yeah. It wasn't when we were an independent company and this was part of like the, the, the advantage of having, uh, of being part of deer, right. Is that, uh, we worked, you know, uh, it wasn't my team. It was another group that, that worked, you know, with the deer sprayer team to figure mm-hmm. out exactly how many cameras, how many computers, um, how fast can we go? Uh under what conditions this is going to work for what crops. So mm. that's important. And so no, it's it's integrated into their to to their to their sprayer.
1: And you're actually able, are you able to spray down to the to the plant level individual plants?
2: Yeah. So it's basically it's a, it's we're getting there. Um it's, okay. about meter, it's about a meter by meter patch that we can spray. Okay. Um, and it's getting smaller and smaller and smaller. One of the things that's gonna get it down to the centimeter by centimeter patch is autonomy. You know, again, we're starting with autonomous tillage. actually, if you put these two things together, you can have, and now we're not, we're not there yet, but um, you can have machines go much slower across the field, but they're, they could work 24 seven, you know, spraying, controlling fluid. While you're going 20 miles an hour is really difficult. Hmm. And, um, you could you could theoretically you know uh, if you go a little bit slower you could spray you know really perform surgery on fields and spray these centimeter by centimeter patches and never touch the crop with anything, which means that you could use a non-GMO seed, right? So your seed costs could 10x could reduce by 10x. Your chemical costs could reduce by 10x, right? I mean it would really change farming. We're not there yet, but it's uh, we, we're on our way.
1: So so, so again, I, to recap, what I think I heard then is you're still using the, the seeds that can deal with the spray, but you're just not throwing it down a thunderstorm of, of chemical. You're now being very deliberate about where the worst weeds are and spraying those patches, even though they may have crop plants, the plant's crop plants will survive and you're able to reduce the overall chemical use. Exactly right. Interesting. Well, then let's turn our our attention to the the John Deere 8R tractor and the automation that you guys have put on that. Um, And just remind myself and our audience, I think John Deere showed this off at CES this year. Was that the big big product launch in January? Yeah. Yeah. Tell us a little bit about how your technology has made that tractor what it is.
2: Back to something I said earlier in the, in the show, we started with the most automated machine.
1: Okay. Right.
2: So the way farmers drive tractors and sprayers and everything for years has been to use GPS guidance, right? Okay. Mm -hmm. And that basically allows them, you know, anytime day or night they're they can drive in very precise lines back and forth. Mm -hmm. So they're not double spraying a particular area or planting seeds in two areas. And that human error and steering just isn't a part of it, right? Mm-hmm. And because we're out in farms and we have big, great big open skies, you get really good GPS. It's not like in self driving cars where you're in urban canyons, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you have GPS reflection and stuff, stuff, so on and so forth. So, deer has um, a really strong capability in GNSS systems uh, and guidance systems. And yep. so, these have been in production for years. And this is how people have been farming for years. So, we're building on the back of that. Okay. Right. And then, you know, all of the electrification of the tractor is we're building the back of that as well. So we can control anything from a CAN bus. We can turn the windshield wipers on uh, and flash the lights and honk the horn with CAN bus messages, right? And do steering brake, everything like that. The tractor actually didn't have to change that much. Mm-hmm. Um, what it needed was eyes. So we, you know, we kind of do the normal thing where you look at like, hey, here are the suite of sensors that are available to us. Let's evaluate all of those. um And this, you know, in the beginning, it looked like a battleship, right? We had, <laughs> you know, a million different sensors poking off in every direction. We went and collected data, you know, in field uh, in, the, in the environment and um, just assessed how well things, how well or poorly things went and ended up landing. It was somewhat unintuitive, uh, especially given my background with you know, mapping and autonomous cars. We, we actually ended up not using LIDARs. Um, mm-hmm. And the reason for that was, there was a bunch of reasons, but but dust was a major one. Right. Um, mm-hmm. That they just don't perform as well in dust. And the other was, there are moving parts and it's a really rugged environment. And then the other is that we're actually just not going that fast, right? Mm-hmm. We're going like eight, 10 miles an hour. We don't have to see 90 meters ahead of us, right? <laughs> we need to see 30, you know, 20 meters ahead of us. So we ended up with stereo cameras. Okay. And um, the other thing, you know, because we were such a deep learning, heavy company, you know, image segmentation just really isn't a huge problem anymore. With a lot, with enough well-labeled data, you can kind of figure out what you're looking at in any given scene. And, you know,
1: you know whether it's a tree or, or a cow or a rock or a human?
2: Funnily enough, we actually, the way we did it was uh, we had this really bad data imbalance problem where... We had lots and lots of sample pixels of ground and sky and trees, and then very few of the weird anomalies that we care about. And so one of the interesting things about ag autonomy is like, you know, in in self-driving, you can get lots of samples of pedestrians Mm -hmm. or other cars. Like you just go out, hey, we need more red cars. Just, okay, go follow some red cars. We need more pedestrians here. You can go get it. There are no people out in farms, right? Um, These are big empty spaces. And so uh, we had to design something that had um, you know, high degree of reliability around detecting things that are unexpected. Mm-hmm. So we ended up kind of reversing the problem where um, we got very, very good at knowing, at classifying the pixels that we had lots of samples of, mm-hmm. um, ground, tree, skies being the primary one. And basically there was this other class, large object, right? And, and we set up the, you know, the cost function and the, and the reward function in the network to highly penalize missing this other class. Hmm. so that's basically how we got you know very very high safety performance on kind of any object you throw at it that is not ground tree or sky and in farming you could stop right you you can just hit on hit the brakes and stop for something and so that's this you know huge advantage over over on road driving anyway so that that's how the network's designed um, we have six stereo cameras both running through uh NVIDIA GPUs and, mm-hmm. um, uh, and and anyway, that's 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 the architecture of the system.
1: And and the the solutions now is where the ADR before had the autonomy for the farmer to stay on board mm-hmm. and drive straight, but it was more of an ADAS like solution. 100%. That that they were still maybe paying attention to other things; they didn't have to pay attention to driving straight. Here, that there's no one has to be on board, right? You're saying exactly they, right. Yeah. You, yeah. Launch, you launch it on its pat on its on its mission. To do whatever uh, farm, sh- whatever shape field you have, and it goes off and does its thing and
2: stops when it's done, right? That's exactly right. That's yeah. exactly right. Yeah. The ADAS yeah. analogy is perfect.
1: Perfect. Yeah. And I think you're, I can now I can see how the parameters are so much different You know, for a tractor versus being on the road. It's still, you know, level five autonomy on the road. We're still a decade away from that type of autonomy, but, you know, here you're doing it. On the farm field safely, sounds like you know, in accomplishing the goals you set out to to hit. Yep. The other thing that I'm here coming together then now is you've got a smart implement. And this, there's I've heard I've been following the 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 concepts of smart implementations, and implements are getting smarter, whether they're driven by human-driven tractors or now. Autonomous tractors. What do you see as sort of the the future between you know more smart implements and in, in this combination now of of smart tractors? Is is the, their growth? Are farmers open to this? You know all this technology, uh, machine vision. Does that confuse them, or are they they are they excited about it?
2: When they're really excited. I think what farmers want are great results. Um, they're businessmen and mm-hmm. uh, businessmen and businesswomen. They, they are among the most willing experimenters I've ever encountered in business. Mm-hmm. Um, they will not, not to put a pun on it, but bet the farm on a new technology, but they'll bet, you know, a percentage of their acres and let you try mm-hmm. um, and let you, it's very easy to convince a, a progressive farmer to, to, to come in and say, Hey, give us some of your land and let us try this. And if they, if you have a good reputation and you, you 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 do your work well, like they'll let you kind of increase that and increase that every year. So they're constantly experimenting. and they are they actually have you know an incredible mindset around technology, and I find them I find that a lot of the customers intuitively grasp technology better than most people in urban areas because mm. they work with equipment all the time.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Um, they work with equipment, they work with complex systems. Uh, a farm is a very complex system. They work with um, obviously heavy equipment that you think of, but all of this, you know, there's a lot of software on these machines now, so they they understand that. Um, they've been using GPS, uh, GNSS systems for years to to guide them. So there's a lot they intuitively just get. Um, so and 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 finally, if you if you build it really well, they don't have to understand it, right? Mm-hmm. What they have to do is just believe their own eyes when it works. And I think that's the job of of roboticists is to turn it into something that doesn't feel like a robot, right? Because a robots, you know, ha- has this connotation that, that it is uh, something that may not work or it's a toy or, but I think that, you know, a great product is just something that works and they don't have to think about it. They can go, go on with their life and do something else.
1: So Willie, really, uh, you know, I know that you've you've spent quite a bit of time looking at autonomous vehicles in general and in this very specific application but you guys have designed it to minimize the the variables that impact. So when you look at at the broader things that are happening around autonomy for autonomous vehicles on the road versus what you're doing in the field, you know, what are some of those things those trends that you're seeing what are what are some of the, the things you're taking inspiration from to, to make this a much more robust system and to, and to meet your roadmap going forward?
2: Yeah, pro- probably the biggest the biggest source of inspiration for us is Tesla. Uh, there are a lot of reasons. I mean, yeah, it's not totally surprising. I think uh, the biggest reason is that they're really a deep learning first company where they've designed their entire strategy and their entire system around machine learning from day one, mm-hmm. um, as opposed to lots of the other robotics companies that were doing more classical systems. Um, And then they tacked deep learning on top of it. And I think what that drives is um, generally kind of different sensor selections and a uh, a strategy of phase rollout where the system improves performance the more you use the system Mm -hmm. rather than something that's kind of ready from day one. And so uh, it just forces you to focus on different things. Um, The other thing I think they did really well was they're shipping all of that hardware comes on a Tesla right and and so that's naturally collecting data and people can kind of opt into higher levels of of, of ADAS uh, with Tesla I think the the difference is that we believe that we just have an environment that's got fewer variables than on-road driving so we can kind of take that inspiration from Tesla and, and get to full autonomy just much faster um, than you could on road but um uh, certainly Andre Karpathy and and the and the Tesla folks are a big inspiration. I mean, we look at all the autonomous car companies, that's probably the one that comes up the most frequently.
1: Yeah, and so and so what what you're saying is that like Tesla brings data in on a continuous basis it uh, loads that up to the cloud in a way that's autonomous. That's anonymous. That's the word I'm looking for. Uh, and then uses that to further train the system. You're doing the same thing with your data. You're bringing that information back home, so to speak, and improving the models and then pushing improved data models back out to mm-hmm. the field to it's good. The system is going to improve over time and it's going to
2: continue to do that. That's right. That's exactly right. And the, the interesting thing similar to tesla that we're building now is now we have a highly performing a highly performing model that's very safe and very productive and what we're starting to do now is actually make models to discover where the model's weak mm. and capture that data so pick it off you know while it's running on the system and, and and say hey this is this is getting queued for upload that data gets labeled that data ends up in a training set and the performance improves so there's actually um, models to improve models now, and this this we're we're closing the loop of this system that is pulling interesting data <laughs> off the machine, uh, such that you know people don't really need to be involved, right? Um, that the system literally self heals. Like the more you use it, the better it gets. Um, that's the goal. And I think that's a
1: great that's a great tagline for uh, any type of uh, artificial intelligence based system that that Absolutely. you know isn't necessarily obvious when you. Begin to deploy it, right? So, looking forward, then on the roadmap, with as much as you're willing to share, are there other ways that you believe that automation like this is going to make the, the life of farmers and agriculture better uh, going forward? You talk about tillage is is the first thing. What's mm-hmm. sort of the next low hanging fruit to use a pun uh, on the farm that that <laughs> I think is gonna is gonna be interesting to solve?
2: We're really uh, focused. Um, most of our energy is focused on automating every major job the tractor does. Okay, and so uh, there's two types of tillage: uh, fall tillage and spring tillage, mm. and, and tractors are used for both of those. Also, planting, and then what we talked about before was grain cart, where the grain cart follows the combines. That's more, mm. of a, you know, you've actually got two machines coordinating in that operation. And so those are the four major pillars of the tractor. That's that's what a tractor generally does. Tractors also happen to do things like plow snow and give kids hay rides. Right? But we're not we're not doing that. Um, so the tractor is still going to have a cab. They're going to have to move it from field to fields. And there are all you know tractors are a little bit like Swiss Army knives where you can use it for many different things. Mm-hmm. Um, but those four major operations take up most of the hours. And once a farmer has those four things autonomous it really changes their business, right? Um, uh, They're way less sensitive to labor coming and going and they can focus much more on what humans are really good at, which is, you know, making the strategic decisions and Mm -hmm. doing the harder operations. Um, And and there's just always something else to be doing on a farm besides sitting in a tractor. Um, So really we're just getting human beings to do what they're better at um, and getting machines to do what they're better at as as you that's that's sort of the near-term roadmap is those four major operations and mm-hmm. getting this um, hardware in the base model tractor such that everyone in the world, you know, every tractor that goes off the line has this in there. And if people want to use it, they can use it. And if they don't want to use it, they don't have to use it. And then, you know, we're gonna move into all kinds of other operations. You know, construction is a huge area. We make lots of construction equipment, right? Mm-hmm. And it's very similar thing where you have this, you know, it's it's more complicated than a farming environment, but but it's still quite a bit more simple than um, than, than on-road, um, slower speeds, fewer variables, so on and so forth. So we're going to just start taking this technology and applying it across the entire fleet of everything we have.
1: Well, that sounds like it's, you've got uh, plenty to keep you busy for quite, quite a long time. It'll be an interesting
2: decade. Yeah, it'll be a good decade. Interesting. <laughs>
1: It's been an interesting conversation. I've I've learned quite a bit. And I think I'm going to look at tractors differently from, from now on. Every time I see one in the field, I'll be looking to see if there's anybody in that cab.
2: Hey, thanks, Mike. Um, a fan of the show and uh, appreciate you having me on.
0: Great. Thank you. All right. Awesome. Uh, thanks again. Willie Pell, VP of automation at Blue River Technology. Uh, for coming on to the podcast this week. Uh it, always interesting Mike to hear from these folks. And um, you know, interesting that we are talking about the cruise story you know, yep. early on in the show and some of the edge cases and, and sort of what they've learned. But, you know, and I, I don't think I was aware of this. Cruise at one point was in their early days started as in their their uh their dreams and admirations were to be an eight-ass company as well. And it sounds like what 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 is going on here is the, is John Deere, Blue River, they've taken what they learned from those eight-ass days, and, and uh, certainly improved the autonomy of these tractors tremendously.
1: Yeah, I think they're you know they're on the path now. They're going full full production mode now, uh, able to to build and deploy these solutions anywhere in the world
0: uh, from this point forward. Awesome. Thanks again, uh, Willie Pell of Blue River Technology for coming on the show. One programming note uh, before we go: we briefly mentioned it off the top of the show here. Next week, we will be revealing the winners of our annual uh, RBR50 Robotics Innovation Awards. Uh, the plan is to do that early next week. I think we're hoping to do that on Tuesday morning. Uh, so stay tuned for that. Our next episode of the podcast will be our uh, RBR50 special, where we'll dive into, just like last year, sort of review the process that we went to, uh, went through. But more importantly, sharing some of the more interesting, innovative, unique startups that were all uh you know that were more interesting to each of us uh, on the committee here that reviewed these winners. So again, uh RBR50 Robotics Innovation Award winners being announced early next week and we'll have our special RBR50 uh podcast out next week as well. One other reminder this episode of the Robot Report podcast brought to you by The Robotics Summit and Expo, this is the world's leading robotics design and development event. It's returning to Boston in less than a month, like what, three weeks away here, Mike? Yeah. Uh, May 10th to the 11th at the Boston Convention Center. Uh, I think the show floor, I think I saw four booths left. Uh, So we're going to have over 100 sponsors on the show floor, about 60 speakers in the conference track there's a career fair there's a design for additive manufacturing workshop you can test drive the spot robot from Boston Dynamics it's going to be uh, it's going to be a great time again we haven't done this in 3 years obviously due to covid so i know uh, we're all itching to get back and see everybody in person so again registration it's open the full agenda is up there you can check out the exhibitors on the show floor If you have any questions, you know, feel free to reach out to Mike and myself, Dan and Brianna. You know, happy to figure out a way to get you guys to the show, get you involved in the show with any sort of opportunities that remain. Uh, But uh, Boston, uh, May 10th to the 11th is the return of the Robotics Summit and Expo. Hope to see you all there. Uh, Again, new episodes of the podcast drop each week. If you haven't subscribed to us yet, we ask that you do that. Uh, help Mike and I out, give us a review, leave us a rating. We really appreciate that. You can find us on all the major podcast platforms, Amazon Music, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, SoundCloud, Spotify, anywhere you listen to your podcasts. And on behalf of Mike Oitzman and the entire team, I'm Steve Crow. Thanks again, folks, for tuning in. We'll talk to you again next week.